I'm here with Dr. Herman from St. Christopher's Hospital for Children, and we're going to be talking about supracondylar humerus fractures today. To start out with, um, would you mind going through sort of the classification system uh, that you use, and uh, we'll go from there. So about 98% of supracondylar humerus fractures are extension types, with only 2% being flexion types. For extension type supracondylars, we generally use the Gartland classification system. This system is divided really into three parts. Type 1 is a non-displaced supracondylar fracture. Type 2 is a supracondylar fracture that is extended but has some cortical contact posteriorly. And type 3 is a supracondylar fracture where there's no contact between the bony pieces. Some authors talk about a type 4 supracondylar fracture which is really one that is unstable in both flexion and extension. And some authors have divided type 2 supracondylars into two types. Type 2A is one that is purely extended with no flexion, excuse me, with no rotation or translation. And a type 2B is one that has rotation and extension uh, or translation. And type 3s really are closer to type 3s than type 2 than the standard type 2. Going along with that classification system, uh, how does that affect the overall management of these uh, fractures? Standard management of type 1 supracondylar fractures is with a cast. The child's arm is basically held at 90 degrees, uh, neutral rotation at the forearm, and uh, the cast is maintained for about three weeks. Type 2A supracondylar fractures, that is those that don't have translation or rotation, can be managed with gentle flexion just above 90 degrees and casting. A subgroup of type 2A fractures will also require pinning because once the cast is placed, they will still extend. Type 2B fractures are treated the same as type 3 and type 4 fractures. These are all treated with closed reduction and percutaneous pin fixation in the OR. With regards to uh, surgery, is there anything that influences your timing to surgery? And then uh, could you talk a little bit further about um, actual pin choice and placement when you take them to surgery? So generally speaking, most supracondylar fractures can be splinted in gentle flexion at admission and then operated on the next morning. There's a subgroup of fractures, however, that should be treated as emergencies. These are those with an abnormal vascular exam, those that are open, those that have skin tenting that might lead to an open fracture, those that are associated with a median nerve neuropraxia that's complete, and those that are associated with a floating elbow. So all of those are uh, risky for compartment syndrome development and should be treated as emergencies. Now, in terms of your second question, uh, the OR planning is similar for all fractures in that we go to the OR and initially prep and drape just enough to perform a closed pinning. I call that a semi-sterile technique. If you are concerned that it's going to have to be an open procedure, then you're going to do a full prep and drape. In the operating room under fluoro, the reduction maneuver is uh, fairly standard. The arm is first extended. The fragment uh, distally is translated and rotated into place. And then with further extension and traction, 
the elbow is flexed. A thumb can be placed on the olecranon to push the distal fragment onto the distal humerus. After the reduction is done, the elbow is held in flexion, and AP and lateral x-rays are obtained by gently uh, externally rotating the elbow. Some How do you determine uh, how many pins to use uh, and uh, medial or lateral or both pin placement? So once the reduction is done, generally pins are placed through the lateral side of the elbow. So my general rule of thumb is type 2 supracondylars require a minimum of two pins and type 3 supracondylars require a minimum of three pins. In the modern era, pins are ideally placed all laterally with as maximal a spread across the fracture site in both planes as possible. There are some indications for a medial pin placement. So these include uh, significant irritation or open lacerations on the lateral side of the elbow. Um, they would include fractures that are not stable after lateral pin placement. And they also often uh, include fractures that have a significant amount of medial comminution. So when a medial pin is placed, the elbow should be extended, a small cut down should be made over the medial epicondyle, and the pin should then be placed on the medial epicondyle, avoiding a posterior slipping of the pin because the ulnar nerve lives just behind or just posterior to the medial epicondyle. Okay. Um, is there anything that you look out for in terms of common mistakes or errors um, and things that you really just don't want to miss when you're in the OR? So the most common mistakes really are not achieving a stable uh, pin construct and having the fracture loose uh, reduction after uh, follow-up. So to avoid that, we'd like to make sure that all the pins are bicortical, that uh, the pins do not cross at the fracture site, and that after the pinning is done, you stress the elbow under live fluoroscopy and make sure that the distal fragment is stable relative to the proximal fragment. And then, of course, the other mistake that is made in, in addition to the pin configuration problem is that people uh, are willing to accept reductions that are not acceptable. So in general, we like to have no varus deformity at all. So this can be checked by extending the elbow after the pins are placed or by measuring Bauman's angle. On the lateral view, we'd like to have the anterior humeral line at least touching the capitellum in all age groups. And then in terms of translation, uh, as much as 50% translation would be acceptable as long as the other parameters that we just discussed are acceptable and you can get stable fixation with the translation. If the reduction is unacceptable, closed, you have to go to open reduction. The last question that I have uh, regarding operative treatment of these injuries uh, is, can you walk me through the algorithm for uh, a patient that you see with uh, either pulseless and pink hand or pulseless hand with no cap refill, uh, those issues that come up? So I'd like to think of the vascular exam uh, separated out into several categories. So for most children, there is a normal vascular exam. That is, they have a palpable radial pulse and they have normal hand perfusion. 
A second group, however, is the child who has no palpable pulse but still has hand perfusion. And the third group of patients are those that have no hand perfusion and no palpable pulse. So number one, of course, is normal, and number two and three are both abnormal. So both of those need to be addressed in a similar fashion. I, I think both of those should be treated emergently or at least urgently within several hours of admission. Certainly the third one should be treated emergently. Um, and then once you're in the operating room, the algorithm is fairly similar for the two of them. So in the operating room, the arm is uh, prepped and draped out sterilely uh, with a complete drape. A closed reduction is done and a percutaneous uh, pin construct is placed and then the vascular status is reassessed. So if the hand is uh, perfused and pulseless and you're confident that the perfusion is close to normal, that is by checking for capillary refill uh, timing and checking for warmth, then you can splint that child and then admit that child to a unit where frequent vascular checks can be done. If, however, you do the closed reduction and pinning and the vascular supply to the hand is not restored, then um, you're at that point forced to do an open exploration of the humerus. Now, if you want to await for 20 to 25 minutes to see if a potential spasm of the artery recovers after your reduction in pinning, that's okay. But I think you have to be prepared to do an anterior open approach to the elbow and assess the brachial artery. So last, uh, last question is uh, basically regarding how you take care of these uh, patients after uh, surgery. So after surgery, all the kids are splinted in approximately 80 to 90 degrees of flexion. There's no reason to flex beyond 90 degrees, and doing that might actually increase the potential for swelling or compartment syndrome. They are then admitted to the floor after surgery, and in our institution at least, they're only given Tylenol for pain because we don't want to mask a potential compartment syndrome. While early on people felt that that wasn't uh, too uh, fair to the children, that they'd have excessive pain, we studied this and learned that Tylenol alone is completely adequate. They're usually discharged the following uh, day after surgery and then followed up in one week. Uh, on that day, an x-ray is taken to make sure that the pins haven't changed uh, or that the rotation, uh, excuse me, at the reduction haven't, hasn't been lost. I typically will convert the splint to a cast. Um, at week three after surgery, the uh, x-rays are repeated. Uh, at that point, most kids are healed, so pins can be removed. And then the kids are placed in a sling and gentle early range of motion has begun. Um, I then follow them up within four to six weeks to check range of motion. And as is the case for most uncomplicated supracondylar fractures, elbow motion is restored within three months in almost every child. If the child has a neuropraxia related to their uh, original injury, the majority of those will resolve as uh, all of us are aware the anterior interosseous nerve palsy is most common, and that is just loss of uh, flexion at the DIP joint of the index finger and the IP of the thumb with no sensory change. Those uh, resolve in nearly every case. Complete median nerve injuries are the next most common injury, and they take longer to resolve, but again, based on our experience, most of those resolve. Ulnar nerve injuries occur almost never 
in extension supracondylar fractures, but are the most common nerve injury in flexion supracondylars. And radial nerve injuries are uh, rare in both groups, except if there's a significant amount of medial displacement of the distal fragment. All right, thank you very much, Dr. Herman. Appreciate it.